So we're looking at the line of kings, and here's our objectives. You'll see the main four categories in your notes. Number one, the line of Seth. Number two, the patriarchs. Then we're going to look at the line of the Messiah and his genealogy, and then the truth. So that's what we're going to look at. We'll start here with the line of Seth. And we've looked at this. I kind of like sometimes looking at a whole chapter and just highlighting certain words to make help me see what our messages God's trying to teach. So you can see it's really about Cain, but the Lord is an important player throughout Scripture. Obviously, it's all about Christ. But now in chapter 4, we have the line of Cain. What is that specifically not about, or who is being excluded? Who is being pushed away? God. And so you see God is in there several times, um, except not at all in this passage with the line of Cain. And so we could also say down at the bottom, now let's get down to Seth. And you see Eve saying, God has appointed me another offspring. Part of his name means appointed. But look at Eve up front on the top. This is Cain, the first child ever born. I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Notice that is Yahweh. That is intimacy. That is close relationship. Now, after the death of Abel by Cain, it's removed back to the more distant Elohim. God, Elohim, has appointed me another offspring in the place of Abel, for Cain killed him. There's now sorrow. The relationship has been scarred because they've experienced death. But notice Seth, the line of Seth. He had a son uh, named Enosh, and then men began to call on the name of the Lord. And notice it moves back to Yahweh, to intimacy, to the covenant God again. And so to call on him means to proclaim him, to call him Lord, to worship him, He is the one, and you actually, there's missions work here as well of proclaiming him to others. So you have a revival with the line of Seth. So Canius in the Greek, this is the way of with the E-U-S, Canius, the way of Cain. That's what last week was about as we talked about the way of Cain. You have the way of Cain doesn't have to be just the bloodline of Cain. So the way of Cain is causing men to reject God. And by the time of Genesis 6, 1656 years after creation, God sends the flood. Number one, the flood destroyed nearly everyone, including the line of Cain and the line of Seth. There's eight people that are saved. You have Noah and his three sons, why on earth would you wait till 500 to have your first kid? That's foolish to think that. What this tells you is these three sons were born after he was 500. They're the only ones that went on the ark. Those aren't going to be his only three kids, but they're the ones that matter to hear about. But people will, especially dealing with the Nephilim, people will try to deal with the line of Seth and the line of Cain and saying one is righteous and one is evil. How is that true? They're all killed except one guy and his family, and we don't know the lineage of any of the four women. So it's not like there's a godly line and a wicked line. That doesn't make sense because there's only one family left. What it means is there's a tug-of-war of sovereignty between God and Satan, and it ebbs and flows. And by this time, there was a revival from, that's number three there, the son of Seth. There's revival. We know Enoch was powerful, But God took him, and so Satan thinks he is kind of one by the time we get to the flood, because there's only one family that we know of, that's Noah's. And we're not told about the righteousness of the four women, by the way. 
So now we see what the flood does. Here we have this worldwide cataclysmic flood. Yes, it covers everything. That's where you get our mountain ranges. That's how you get your valleys from all the fountains of the great deep bursting forth in the same day. Now we're not talking about the flood, but it's important to understand what it does. And we're not doing Greek mythology, but I like to just bring it in. It sprinkles interesting flavor. Here we have the way of Cain, Canius. It's obvious who the guy is being pounded into the ground. Notice there's three sons of Noah. Those are the centaurs, the hundred years before the flood. So they're pounding him into the ground, exterminating the physical bloodline of Cain is exterminated, although we don't know about the women, but the bloodline goes to the men. So the bloodline of Cain is exterminated at the flood of Noah. But then Greek myth says it's not about the bloodline of Cain, it's about the way of Cain, and it is reborn. So Athena now is reborn. She wasn't one of the original goddesses, but she is the rebirth of power of the way of Cain post-flood. And you notice Hephaestus, he's always moving away. He is from the old. He is the firstborn son of Zeus and Hera, of Adam and Eve. He's the firstborn, but he is both Cain as well as Tubal-Cain. He is Hephaestus, the god of the forge. And so he has tools as well as makes weapons, and he helps bring forth Athena, who is fully armed with spear and shield, coming right out of the brain, the idea of Zeus the serpent. That's a rapid synopsis of a ton of information with Greek mythology. And then we have the descendant of Hephaestus, so that is Erechthonio. So Hephaestus helps with this birth as well, and you notice it's from Gaia, the earth. So his seed is pounded into the ground at the flood. The line of Cain is physically exterminated. But from, we're now flipping around from the line of Cain's side, not talking it from the line of, from Yahweh believer's side. We will not be destroyed. We will come back and look. Earth itself gave birth to Erichthonios, shining, white, glorious. Here's Athena. Remember when she was born, she's fully clad with armor. This is the only time she sets down her armor. This signifies the way of Cain is revived and moving back into power. So that's a Greek, uh, a brief summary of Greek mythology. But we're going to stick with scripture for knowing what absolute truth is. But it's interesting to see how other cultures and ways of thinking tell the same story from a different perspective. Now we have after the flood to the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And what we're going to do is just focus on Shem. The Semites come from him, the son of Noah. So if you look at a simplified genealogy, you have Adam up here. Of course, Noah would have had more than three kids. Those are the three boys born after his age 500. And he had Shem, Ham, and Japheth. That's all you need to know about because they're the only three that hopped on the ark with him. Then you have Shem. That's going to be the godly line where you get the word Semites. It's from Shem. And so you can move this up a little further and see now we're going to go down to Abraham. And then Abraham has two sons uh, that are important. That would be Ishmael and Isaac. Isaac, the son of the promise. So the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, he changed his name later to Abraham, and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which, you notice God is a god a goal-setting God. He's teleological. He sees the end from the beginning, and he speaks the end into existence. I will. Those are definitive statements of an almighty God. And this is a unilateral covenant here. I will do several things. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. You'll be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you all I will curse. And this applies to nations. This has never been retracted. So you can ask, what's one of the ways America, yes, we have been a great nation. Yes, we're in decline. What's one of the bellwethers of that? How do we treat Israel? Very simple from Genesis 12. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So he's moving this the, as, as we're looking at the Messiah, which is promised in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman that will crush the serpent, it now gets crystallized. This will happen through the line of Abraham. From your descendants will come somebody who will bless all the earth. Number two, through Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's through Abraham. So principle number one that we started this class several weeks ago is very simple. God is sovereign. It's a very simple statement. Isaiah 46, remember the former things long past, for I am God. There is no other. I am God. There is no one like me. I declare the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Look at the, this is what will be, here's what I will accomplish. Notice when God makes a statement of sovereignty, he is inviting usurpers with what to do. If you don't think I'm sovereign, you think you are Lucifer. This defines Lucifer. I will be like the Most High, so the only way he can demonstrate that is by demolishing one statement of God. And he can even make it just kind of fall flat and not be powerful. Then Satan can legitimately say, look, I'm sovereign because I thwarted him. And the bloodlines are an amazing thing to look at, the efforts and attempts of Satan to destroy the bloodline that goes to the Messiah. But he always fails, but he comes close several times. And of course, we have the crushing of the head of the serpent by feminine singular, the seed of the woman, her seed. But that hasn't happened yet back in Genesis. It's just still prophesied. But Satan does not want that one to come true because that directly pertains to his demise. So now let's move to the patriarchs. And you could really spend a lot of time on the patriarchs. Uh, here's the guys before the flood. There's 10 of them, 1,656 years when you add it up until the flood. You just look at Enoch. He's taken at age 365, preacher and teacher of righteousness. But when you look at this line, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, that refrain is repeated with all of them except Enoch. He was taken. He never did die. He was just translated up to heaven. So it's just hinting, now Adam has sinned. Now there is death in the world. You've seen the murder, Cain of Abel. But now everyone will die. But there's some kind of hope. Here's a guy that didn't. Yes, there is a way to get around death. And of course, we see that through Christ, but just you see an interesting foreshadowing. Now here we see the patriarchs after the flood. This took a lot of time, and then we moved it to the widescreen. I had to go redo this thing, but this is by pixels. This is very accurate, magnified 400 times to get them straight. It takes a lot of time. So I had to shorten Noah. You look at Noah. The thing won't fit even on the widescreen. So Noah's 500 years is less than 200 here. That's the only one not drawn to scale. How do you get the millions of years of evolution in here? Or that slide I showed you. There is no way to put millions of years in these genealogies. It's absolutely impossible. There's the flood would happen. Uh, actually, it should have been up here. I didn't put that line right. So let's look at Abraham. That's where this promise starts to come uh, from God. And look at Shem. And you probably right away notice something interesting. 
Shem outlives Abraham by over 50 years. That's an amazing thing. You can spend a lot of time just looking at things with this, but now let's look at Jacob. What's his other name? Israel. So you look at Israel. Shem lives to see Jacob. They're alive on the earth at the same time. Number three, Shem outlives Abraham and could have known Jacob. Shem outlives Abraham. So now let's go to Joseph down at the bottom. Uh, and so he had other, Jacob had other sons. I just, this is the name of the main firstborn son. But here Joseph is 91. Uh, Jacob is 91 and he has Joseph. He had his other sons before that. But the Joseph is the one we're interested in here. Because Joseph goes down to Egypt. And Pharaoh sees, man, this guy is different. Pharaoh recognizes something is different about Joseph. He can interpret dreams. He has a spirit of a different God than the gods we worship here. Something's weird about that guy. And then there's the famine. Joseph knows how to solve it. And then he gets his family to come down from Canaan because you're going to starve up there. So the old man Abraham shows up now before Pharaoh. Then Joseph brought his father Jacob and presented him to Pharaoh. Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many years have you lived? Dude, you look old. Yeah, Jacob said to Pharaoh, the years of my sojourning are 130. He lived 147. This is 17 years before he dies. I'm 130 years old. Few and unpleasant have been the years of my life, nor have they attained to the years that my fathers lived during the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. And so we want to always think biblically and interconnect Scripture. And we know from Hebrews 7, and this gives us number 4. Without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. Well, who did the blessing here? Jacob did the blessing of who? Was that you? Um, Jacob did the blessing of Pharaoh. In the Egyptian system, who is Pharaoh? He is the God-man. Why are you accepting a blessing from that old guy? Now, in case you missed it, Jacob blessed Pharaoh, and he did that two different times in the same encounter. There's no confusion here. He didn't slip it in where Pharaoh didn't see it. Pharaoh is acknowledging the old man has something. He's new Joseph. That old man is his father. There's something of the spirit of a different God here. And he accepts the blessing. He acknowledges that old man is greater than me, even though I am the God-man. That is a fascinating concept. And of course, this Pharaoh dies out when the next one comes and the 400 years starts counting of getting the 400 years uh, being humiliated in Egypt. That didn't start under this Pharaoh. So let's we see that verse, and we're looking at Jacob here. And you see what Jacob said. My 130 years did not attain to that of my daddy, Isaac. No. Plural. That doesn't mean he has multiple fathers. What is he talking about? His father, Isaac, just died seven years before this. And then Abraham died about 90 years to 100 years before this. He's not talking about those guys. He's talking about my father's plural. He is talking about guys like Eber, from which we get the name Hebrew. Eber, the Hebrew, he only died 40 years ago. And then Shem, he died after Abraham. I'm not talking about Isaac seven years ago or Abraham. I'm talking about my fathers. You talk about living a long time. You think 
My father, you think I am good at 130 years old? Let me tell you what a dude who is 600 years old has to say about life. I think Pharaoh kind of knew something of what was going on. He's talking about Shem, the start of the Semites, and Eber. So remember last week we looked at the band of brothers and when they went and uh, cleaned out the one of the camps from World War II, and here's Auschwitz, that phrase from, I, it still affects me to this day, thinking back probably 15 years ago, and Don McLean stood up and said, I was there. And you had a group of people like this where all sorts of people were giving our two cents from our generations. Well, yeah, you know, we took a trip there, I took a trip there, and everyone is adding stuff. And when the old man stood up shaking, it was amazing how that room fell silent. For several minutes, he didn't even say, all he said was, I was there. What do you possibly have to add to the conversation? Nothing. I was there. Think of Adam and Eve, and they evangelized Cain as well as Abel, as well as Seth. We remember what it was like to walk with an untarnished, unfallen heart that is not depraved. No one has ever experienced that except Jesus Christ and those two people only for a limited period of time. And now let's look at Abraham, and we're going to go to Noah. We're going to look at I was there. Noah lived to see Abraham over 50 years. Noah Nerus in the Greek mythology, the old salt man of the sea, the guy who knew what it was like before Noah can say, I was there, young Abraham, for 500 years before I had these boys that made it, then another 100 years, 600 years of time before the flood. Let me tell you what this world was like. Number five. Abraham wasn't called to leave Ur until after Noah died. Whoa. Abraham was called at age 75. That's about 20 years after the old man of the sea had died. I, we don't know, but I bet Noah still had gravity. He also had gravitas to the system. And it was after that guy died that God finally calls Abraham out of Ur. And then he goes to Haran. And then he is the first Hebrew, named after Eber, who outlived Abraham, as well as Shem. So there is where Shem dies, here is where Eber dies, and here is where Jacob, Israel, gives his statement seven years after the death of Isaac, but talking about my father specifically, I know he's talking about Eber and Shem. Those are two of the guys, he know it's plural. So you could spend a lot of time, I think it's fascinating just looking at those things and thinking about what must have happened, but that's just a snippet to kind of get your interest going. We're going to look now at the line of the Messiah. And so here you have, of course, the line starts with Adam. There's your patriarchs before the flood. We talked about Lamech last week. You notice there's a Lamech on the good side as well as a Lamech on the bad side. This Lamech, the sixth generation was the wicked side. Remember, he had the polygamist and murder and talking about his braggadocio. I would bet Adam dies as Lamech takes power. I don't know that. I'm guessing that, but it makes good sense. That first old man dies, a guy who could say, I was there. We finally got rid of him. Now I'm going to come into my own system. That makes good logical sense. But we're really going to focus on the line of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so, of course, from the Hebrew perspective, it all starts with Abraham, and then David is one of their other heroes. And we'll talk about this a little bit later, hopefully, but the old man Abraham sacrifices Isaac, 
And the angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time. And you see the story, but he ends up saying, your seed, in your seed, from your lineage. So we know back in Genesis 3.15, there's a seed of the woman somewhere, but we don't know which line it's going to come from because Adam and Eve had multiple children. But then it's narrowed down at the flood. It has to come from Noah. And we're not sure which line, but the Bible is letting us know that Shem is this line. And from Shem, now you have Abraham. And now it's crystallized again. What God is doing is telling Satan, here's where it's coming. Go ahead and attack it. Go ahead and try to make this fall short. All the nations will be blessed through your seed. So now we're going to look at King David. So it crystallizes again, this genealogy, from Abraham down to David. And of course, David kills Goliath. God speaking to him, when your days are complete and you lie down, once you die, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you, from your bloodline. I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name. Jesus will be in charge of another millennial temple in the millennial kingdom. So yes, he references Solomon here, but he's really looking forward to the Messiah. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as God took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever. So there is a Davidic dynasty that will rule forever. That was given to Saul and pulled away from Saul because of his actions. And then he also lost the kingdom. We looked at some of that aspect last week. But it will be a descendant after you from your bloodline. That's who the Messiah will be. Number six, God further narrows down the line from Abraham to David. Adam, Noah, Shem, Abraham, David. So now we see King David. But from King David, you look in the New Testament and you see there are two conflicting genealogies. And they're not the same names that go from David connecting him to the Messiah, which we know, of course, is Jesus Christ. And so you might say, well, those are contradictory. What do you do when you see a contradiction in Scripture? You go back to the Scriptures to see and ask yourself, where did I make my mistake Right? Uh, and so one simple one, we already alluded to it. Uh, some passage will say they're in Egypt 400 years being afflicted. Others will say it's 430. And it even says to the day, the 400 years. So wait a minute, is it 400 to 430? Well, there's 30 years there with the same Pharaoh where they're not afflicted. And they say, hey, here's the have the best of my land. So that's 430. He dies. Now you start the next 400. But you can superficially think you found an error in scripture. Never think that. Always figure out what am I missing. So we're going to look at the line from Matthew and the line from Luke. And we're going to realize that all scripture is inspired by God. And it all serves a purpose. And it's each telling you different pieces of things. And it's our job to patch that together. So we're going to look at these two. Matthew on the one side and Luke over on the other. We'll start with Matthew. He is a Hebrew. What language do you think he's writing in? Hebrew. Who is he writing to? Hebrews, he's writing to the Jews. He is a legalist. He is a tax collector. He wants to know what is the legal ramifications of the law. That's what he's writing about. How about Luke? What is his, what kind of person is he? He's a physician by trade. That came from somewhere over there. Uh, He's a physician, but he is a Greek. So he's less interested in the Jewish Small picture, he's looking at the big picture for all mankind, including Gentiles, and he is a physician. So he's less interested in the legal ramifications and more interested in the physical things, uh, bloodline, virgin birth. Number seven, 
Matthew focuses on the legal line, whereas Luke focuses on the bloodline. So here you see a big picture of the genealogies going from Abraham, or from Adam down to Abraham to David, two different lines, a line of Mary and a line of Joseph that end up with the Christ. What does Luke do? So he is interested in the blood, not so much the legality. He starts, first chapter, here's the birth of John the Baptist, then right into the virgin birth, and notice those are much different, the way he treats the virgin birth. This physician is very interested in that. The virgin birth of Mary giving birth to Joseph, or to uh, Jesus. Would Jesus share her blood? Yeah, they got a placenta. That's how it's feeding. They got an umbilical cord. It's a natural birth. The conception was different. And he goes backwards all the way to Adam. All the blood relates to Adam. That's what Luke does. Matthew starts with Abraham, the Hebrew. So that's who he starts with, but then his highlight is David, but his first man is going to be Abraham. And then it's David, the king, with the right to rule on the throne. God gives him that right. And then it goes, the line of the kings, notice the crowns. It goes to Joseph, who is of the line of the kings, but he is not the father of David, but he's the legal father of David by adoption. So it's not a bloodline, but it's legally valid. So now you look at Abraham, the Hebrew, that's where Matthew is focused on. And so Matthew is writing in Hebrew to the Hebrews, to the Jews. He's a legalist. He starts with Abraham, and then he's interested in prophecy, but he's mostly interested in the prophecy to the right to rule the royal line, the throne of David, which for a couple hundred years was removed. They didn't have a legal king on the throne. The legal right to rule. Luke, the Greek, the physician, interested in the virgin birth, interested in the blood, he traces backwards by blood through Mary back to David, but he's interested in going all the way to Adam. He too is interested in prophecy, but not just the prophecy to the Jews and the king. He's interested in the prophecy, the seed of the woman, and the big picture of the entire earth getting rid of Satan and salvation to all. The Savior to all, not just the Jews. The physical bloodline. But you see how they both are complementary. These are not contradictory. He writes the line of Mary, whereas Matthew is writing the line of Joseph. Number eight. Matthew gives the line of Joseph. Luke gives the line of Mary. So here we see this messianic genealogy. Acts 17 And God hath made of one blood all nations men for to dwell on all the face of the earth. And God is in charge. He's sovereign about when they live and where they go. One blood from one blood you get all men. That means there is no racism. There is no different races. We're all the same race. We all come from Adam. And the word in the Greek is hyma, one blood. There is one blood. Well, who is that? What was the one dude that started the bloodline? Adam, that's it. So it's Adam is the one guy in charge of the, or who started the bloodline, um, was Adam. So let's just think for a minute. If evolution is true, you have some sort of Af- out of Africa mat- model. And then which of these dudes do you arbitrarily say, that's Adam? It's very interesting to watch them struggle with language, to watch them struggle with how humanity came to be. You're arbitrarily picking a dude to say it's Adam, but wait, there's more than one tribe. 
There's going to be numerous tribes. Which one do you say is Adam? Which hominid was Adam? There's all sorts of other hominids that would have different lines. Only Adam's could go to Jesus. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all have sinned. One man, singular, masculine. Who is that? Adam. How do you get evolution with this? With evolution, you have millions and billions of years of death and suffering before whichever guy you arbitrarily pick is Adam. It doesn't fit at all with Scripture. You can't harmonize them. We go to 1 Corinthians 15. For since by a man, singular, came death, by a man, singular, also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ will all be made alive. And here you see the concept of the first Adam, and you'll read the last, but he is also the second. There is no third, fourth, fifth in the line. There's only two federal heads that have ever existed who had authority over the earth. One was Adam, the other was uh, Jesus. The first one ruins it, the second one redoes it. When Satan tempts Christ, he says, it authority has been handed over to me and I can give it to whomever I wish. Jesus never pulls the liar, liar, pants on fire card. He acknowledges that Satan has legal authority subordinate to God, handed over to him from Adam. There's only been two federal heads, those two. By a man came death, by a man comes the resurrection in Christ, and all will be made alive, all will be resurrected, not all go to eternal heaven. You read in Revelation, the vast majority go to the lake of fire, but they still get resurrected first. Number nine, the first Adam brought death. The last Adam, the second Adam, brought life. Opposites. So it starts with Adam, the first Adam, and it goes to Christ, the last Adam. Powerful concept of federal headship of creation. And of course, the Magi wouldn't be in the stable. They showed up nearly two years later. But this is just, we're picturing here the birth of Christ becoming manifest as a human. Hebrews 2, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same, took on the frailty of flesh and blood, so that through death he might render powerless him who had the power, past tense, of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who, through fear of death, were subject. So the devil had power of death until the death, not the resurrection, until the death of Christ. We're going to talk about that one later on. That's fascinating. It wasn't the resurrection, it's the death. For assuredly, he, Jesus, does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Okay, so angels can't be redeemed. Maybe that's what this means. But it's fascinating to take a literal translation, because different translators have this passage right here in Hebrews, and they kind of, how do you interpret it? Let's take that. Here's the literal rendering. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels. Jesus did not take on angelic form. He took on human form, the seed of Abraham, a legitimate human. So this birth is a legitimate human birth. Why? He falls down. He struggles. He bleeds. If it bleeds, we can kill it. They did kill him. You cannot tempt God. Jesus was tempted. He's taken on the frailty of humanity. He never falls, gives in, but he bleeds. He stumbles, gets tired, must eat. He takes on the frailty of humanity, so it's a legitimate temptation he even sweats blood over it. It's, he didn't fail, but it's theoretically possible that he could fail. It's a legitimate testing. 
And of course, this gown is not nearly bloody enough for what he would have gone through with all his beating. He's so anemic, he should have been dead. He can't even carry the cross all the way. He stumbles and has to be helped carrying the cross. Therefore, he, Jesus, had to be made like his brethren, like humanity in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God to make propitiation. That means to make the payment. If he didn't become human, he has to belong to the blood of Adam. And then his blood is spilled, and who does it save? Only those related by blood to Adam. Nobody else. It doesn't redeem angels. Angels can't be redeemed. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. He's a legitimate high priest. He knows what it's like to be hungry and tired and struggle, yet still persevere. And he completed it without falling. So let's go back to an evolutionary model. What is the bloodline? You're going to have all sorts of competing tribes. It's just in one small part of Africa, and then it comes out of Africa. Who belongs to the line that you arbitrarily pick? Let's pick that guy. If that hominid happens to be Adam, you have more, way more people who were not Adam who have a different bloodline. How can those human beings today be redeemed? They cannot because they do not share the bloodline from Adam. So you see, to try to accept evolution, you start getting all sorts of cartwheels in your mind that don't make sense because you wanted the millions of years in evolution. But you've got a lot of theological problems the moment you start to believe that might be true. Number 10, it is impossible to rectify evolution with Scripture. Well, we're talking about bloodlines. I like this because there's dinosaurs in the garden. Where did Eve scrum up her bloodline from? I mean, you have Adam and Eve. You got two different Eve, they got two different people. There we go. It came from Adam, plucked right out. Her blood came from who? Adam, one blood. You see how literally true and internally consistent Scripture is. Eve is of the bloodline of Adam. It's not a separate person as far as bloodline is concerned. So we look to Luke, the physician, who's quite interested in these things. So he's talking about the virgin. She, Mary, is a descendant of David. That's who Mary is. And Joseph is also of the house and family of David. They both are genetically related by blood to David. So they both are qualifying there. Mary is not the line of the kings, though. Let's look at Mary. Coming into her, Gabriel the angel said, Greetings, favored one. Yes, God has favorites. He doesn't show favoritism, but he does have favorites. The Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor. There it is again. You're a favorite. Double time. With God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son, not of Joseph, but the son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will have the right to rule on that throne. First in the millennium, then this earth will be destroyed, but then it will go for eternity after that. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, how can this be? Because I kind of understand biology. I'm engaged to this dude, but I'm a virgin. Oh, good question. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child will be called the Son of Joseph. Oh, The Son of God. There it is. The Son of God. So now we're in position to understand this genealogy tree a little bit better. Luke 
traces through Mary, who is the son of Heli. Some of them won't have the H on there, but Heli. That's where the bloodline goes. Here's what he says. And when he, Jesus, began his ministry, he was about 30. It doesn't mean he was 30. He was about 30, being supposedly the son of Joseph, the son of. Notice that's in italics. The italics there, in a literal, like a numerican standard, isn't in the real, the real text. The son of Joseph is here. This is not written in Hebrew. There's Ben and Yalad in the Hebrew. Genesis 5, Genesis 11 are Yalad. That is a direct father-son relationship. You can use other genealogies with the term Ben, and that can be an ancestor or a forefather, not necessarily father-son. But this is Greek. That's the only one that says son. Supposedly. So he's telling you it ain't that guy. Joseph is not his father. Being supposedly the son of Joseph, but in reality genetically related by blood too of Heli. So let's look. Here's taking a literal translation. Notice the son is only listed here. All these are added in. That's not in the original text. Of Eli, of, 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 of. So what you really can do is saying, okay, he was supposedly of the son of Joseph, but he wasn't a biological son of him. Who is he actually related to by blood from Mary, Eli? And it goes on. That's the line of Mary, of, 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 all the way back until you have Adam. Well, who is Adam of? God. A son of God, a direct creation of God. Only Adam and the angels fit into that. Helps you understand Genesis 6, by the way, too. Matthew, he's the legalist now, the tax collector. He's writing to the Jews and the Hebrews, your descendants come from our big champion, took the head off the giant, that's David. And God said, your descendant, David, that's who the Messiah will be. We knew coming from Abraham before him. And so in Romans, Jesus Christ is our Lord. He is born of what? Joseph and Mary both belong to David, but he's only born by a singular descendant of David, Mary alone, even though they're both descended from David. That's according to the flesh, according to humanity. Of course, the Holy Spirit had something to say about that. So we see Matthew is tracing the legal line. Through adoption, you can have a legal son, even back in in the Roman days. Luke is going through Mary and the bloodline. And you see they each have a different perspective. The physician is interested in the blood and the genetics. And the legalist wants to make sure it's legally proper to have the right to rule. So you don't like him. You're one of those, I don't like that guy that says he's the truth. How would you possibly disqualify Jesus on a technicality? It's very interesting. Well, you go back in time. Is what's, what's the law? Let's go looking at the law. You don't like Christ. You want to get rid of Christ. You want to disqualify him. Back to Ezra and Nehemiah. This is after the Babylonian captivity. And then they start coming back. And there were those who came up. I just took all the names of the places out. And they were not able to give evidence of their father's households and their descendants. So there's an official genealogy. But then when they went to the captivity, some of the guys who were priests... Where, where, well, John had it, and, and a couple guys couldn't demonstrate, proactively demonstrate that they had legal lineage of being a priest. Well, what happens to those guys? They're considered unclean, can't be a priest. And that happens more than twice in this Ezra Nehemiah segment. So, who would have known that alive at the time of Christ who didn't like Christ? The Pharisees. The Pharisees know that. 
Um, they are the guys who are in the temple. They, do they like Jesus? No, they would love. How come they never pulled out the technicality card? I guarantee you they checked it. Rats, he fits. They can't disqualify him. Christ is the last hope to be a Messiah. If you're a Jew living today and you reject Christ, but you still believe the law, you can't manufacture another Messiah today. Why is that? What happened to the temple from Rome in 70 AD? It was destroyed. Well, what was housed in the temple? The genealogies. The genealogies were housed there. There is no human being alive today that can proactively demonstrate an official registry in the genealogy. It's been destroyed. Notice how God closes the door, but it kept open for thousands of years. So we look at the seed of the woman, and it's only in the New Testament that you talk about it, or this is the only one of the virgin birth. All other seed is always the sperm of a male, except for Mary. It's this unique thing. In Matthew, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom, feminine singular, who was Jesus born from? Feminine singular, Mary. That's the only human part taking part in her birth. So uh, that's special. We would ask a question. Why go through all the trouble of having a virgin birth. Here's an interesting one. How do we get our sin nature? From the Adam and from our dad. Right, so it's from our dad. Um, Matthew knows that because he's got a lot in his heritage that he passed on to his son right there. Surely I was sinful birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Life starts at, at conception, so does death. Very interesting. And so does sin nature. All of those things begin at conception. Prophecy. Isaiah 7.14 Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son. She will call his name Emmanuel. Curse. Thus says the Lord. Jeremiah 22.30 Write this man down childless. Now this king had up to seven children. He's not childless, but we will write him down as childless. Why? He is a man who will not prosper in his days. No man of his physical descendants, no one from his bloodline will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. Who's that guy? And remember? One of his descendants is Jeconiah. Number 11. The virgin birth avoids sin nature. Number one. While fulfilling prophecy. Number two. And fulfilling curses. Number three. Well, we might ask, where does Jeconiah fit? Right there. Notice he's the last guy with a crown on his head. Timing of that is in the Babylonian captivity. The Babylonian guys come and put his uncle on the throne for a while. But after him, none of his genetic relationships ever have a crown again. And they were ruled by the high priest when they had their own territory, but never a king because of the curse on Jeconiah. So you've got some problems. How do you get to that? But we're going to look what other curse was fulfilled with a virgin birth. One we've been talking about. The boot, yeah, the heel of the seed of the woman. Do you guys see that throw, how perfect that was? That is who will crush the head. Feminine singular here in Genesis as well as Matthew, both Hebrew. Feminine singular seed of the woman. 
So we got some problems. You want to kind of manufacture your own Messiah. Look what you got to do. You have to be from the line of Abraham, the seed of promise and Isaac. You have to belong to that. But you also must have the right to rule. You have to belong to the line of David. This is not the king line. It's a bloodline. This is the king line. He had, he had different sons. But you have to belong to this bloodline. But you can't stem by blood from Jeconiah. God canceled that bloodline out as far as being a legitimate king. But you could do it legally through adoption. You also must stem from Adam. The Messiah has to share blood from Adam. But you have to avoid the sin nature that comes from the Father. Look at these problems you have for the Messiah that's very simple for God. No, no, we're just going to simply have a virgin birth, who belongs by blood to David and therefore Abraham and Adam. And this guy is legally in the line of Jeconiah, although not a bloodline of Jeconiah. That is a fantastic amount of stuff to put into one genealogy. So you might say, whose son does Scripture say he is? Notice the child and his mother. I'm just going to go fast through some of these in the yellow. The child and his mother. The child, it is never take your son. When God speaks to Abraham, he says, take your son. He says it twice and go, whoa, your son, your son. No, no. This guy is the child and his mother. Child and his mother. The child and his mother. The child and his mother. The Lord, that is my son. It is not from Joseph. What is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son. You are given the name Jesus because he will save the people from their sins. His earthly life, he is a descendant of David. So he is a branch of David. You study the branch and the root. It's very interesting. He is the branch of David. He is also the branch of the Lord. This guy is unique. He stems from man. He stems from the Lord. That is a unique personality. And you can see how various mythologies try to incorporate the idea of a God-man, and a lot of that would go back to Nephilim stuff, but it's fascinating. This is the legitimate one. All this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord. Behold, the virgin will be with child, and she shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So you can try to get technical and go back to what this is quoting from in Isaiah 7. And that one means virgin. That's the best definition, but it may not. And one of the persons there might have been a virgin, had to say a kid. You can go through all the dancing you want, but at the end of the day, what does God, how does he write his commentary? That's exactly what it meant, is this virgin here, Mary, is going to fulfill as written to Isaiah. So um, our last one would be the truth. Uh, and I tried to pick this up from last time, um, but what we'll do is we'll put this one in, um, uh, hopefully again next week. Um, are there any questions about that? It's kind of a lot of information, but any uh, questions about that? So the question is, what does it mean, seed of Abraham? You know, as Hebrew says the same thing. You took on the seed of Abraham. So Jesus has no connection to male seed or sperm but he has connection to the bloodline of that. And so here's the single line. And so you see that starts with the, the son of promise of Isaac. So any other son still belongs to the seed, in that case, a physical descendant of Abraham, but it's irrelevant. You did that on your own. This is what God is doing is the seed of Abraham. And that's this line. He belongs to the line, but then they make it very clear in the New Testament. He is of the line, but he took no sperm from any human. 
And they go on in great care to tell you, Joseph, that engagement is a year. It is called a divorce. And why do they do that? One of the reasons they have a year-long deal is, hey, is she getting pregnant early? It's obvious. You can hide that. You can maybe pull a two-month deal out of that, but do it for a year. So it is a legal betrothal period, and you have a heavy fee that you pay for this. So it's a financial deal as well. And so, boy, to have a divorce, but they, what it is is you're legally married, but you haven't consummated the marriage with a sexual union yet. And that goes for a year, and that's the period of time that Mary now gets pregnant, is during that one-year betrothal period. Now... Joseph, he was thinking, he's, he's pondering it in his heart. So he's thinking, do I put her away quietly or I'd make a spectacle? But I love the girl, but this, and he was a righteous man. So he's following what it says to do in the law. He has to divorce her. He's trying to figure out how to do this. While he's pondering that, he gets the vision from the angel. This is from the Holy Spirit. And it's Joseph, son of David, you are putting yourself into a context. It is not about you. We're talking about David. We're talking something that predates you, that's way bigger than you. You are a speck. But this is from no human man. You know she's pregnant. She says it was nobody. She says it was him. And now I am confirming it is him. And Joseph never slept with her. So they go through great pains to tell you through the entire betrothal period and up until after the birth of Christ did Joseph then have relations? And yes, they had other children. Some of the people try to say they're listed in the Bible. Um, but that would be the best way I would try to answer that. Yes, it's the seed, and that gives you the family, but there's crystal clear exception made. They're all from the seed and the seed and the seed and the seed and the seed, but there is no seed of a male here. There is no sin nature. And you might debate that, but then it's simple to do what Scripture says. Now we evaluate the life of Jesus. Does he fulfill what you might think Son of man, but son of God. Does he do that well, or does he stumble? Does he fall? Can you point out problems? Can you point out the discrepancy? And then he is raised up by a resurrection and declared to be, at that point in time, now he is the son of God. That's one of the statements his resurrection declares him to be the son of God. So his life and his death create an obvious exception from this issue of the seed of a man. We better pray so we can clear out. Dear Lord, I just thank you for loving us. Thank you that your word is so true and so internally consistent and so simple. Uh, I just pray, Lord, that we will search your word for truth, base our life on it, and that we will yield to you like Mary, who's given this amazing message, but that is nearly a death sentence for somebody in that culture. And she sings out praises, quoting the Old Testament multiple times in her song, She was a favorite. She had your word in her heart. Help us to be like that, Lord. Amen.